We are joined today by Jabale Willajo Zoller, founding artistic director and chief visioning partner of the world-renowned performance ensemble, Urban Bush Women. Inspired by jazz from an early age, Jawale embraces a methodology based on collaboration, strength, and finding the shared genius in the room. On today's episode, Jawale will share how she has persevered in achieving her artistic vision while navigating the administrative realities of running a performance company and pursuing funding. I'm Evangeline Coker, and you're listening to Journeys in Research. Journeys in Research is a podcast conceived by Florida State University's Office of Research Development as an on-the-go resource for faculty. In each episode, we'll hear from an FSU faculty member who will share stories from their research journey, and through that shared experience, help us understand the world of research beyond the college or departmental level. So no matter what field of study our guests come from, their journeys can relate to where we are today. Jawale Willajo Zoller is the Nancy Smith Fitcher Professor of Dance at FSU, and in 2011, she received FSU's prestigious Robert O'Lawton Distinguished Professor Award. In 1984, Jawale founded Urban Bush Women as a performance ensemble dedicated to exploring the use of cultural expression as a catalyst for social change. She has created 34 works with Urban Bush Women, as well as multiple other works for outside companies. Urban Bush Women is among only 20 companies honored by the Ford Foundation as one of America's cultural treasures. I think it was at a keynote, you had said that you're in the profession of creating. And I thought that was a wonderful way to express what you do. Yeah, I mean, that's what I do. I create. And when I, I tell people my job is to be inspired, I think people so misunderstand how artists work. So for me to be inspired, and I'm talking about for me and a lot of people that I know, but this is not, I go to, I, I have to go to museums. I have to read. I have to go to music concerts. I have to go to dance concerts. I have to be in nature. I have to take long walks by myself. I have to sit on the beach whenever I can and just stare out into the into the to the vastness of the world. I have to contemplate our, our beingness. I have to, you know. So what that looks like sometimes to people is that you're not working. Mm. Oh, you're just, oh, she's just having fun. Oh, she goes to concerts all the time. Wow, I wish I could do that with my job. Well, it is my job. So going back to the beginning of when Urban Bush Women was founded in 1984, I was wondering how you navigated those early years as a founder and artistic director of a dance company. When I uh, first moved to New York in 1980, I moved to New York to study with a woman named Diane McIntyre, and she had a company called Sounds in Motion that was at that time located on 125th Street in Harlem. And uh, she was a creative spiritual mentor, is a creative spiritual mentor for me. And what, what I was so happy to see in her, in her work was her use of jazz her use of jazz music. And I grew up in a jazz family, and but I hadn't really 
understood how to integrate it to the depth that Diane's innovation and creativity existed. So that was a that was a that was a huge treasure for me to have this relationship with Diane. So I remember hearing that, yeah, you had grown up in a jazz family and actually had been in the Kitty Act in the comic reviews. Is that where your love of dance started? Yeah, I think my I think I always loved moving. Any moving form, whether it's ice skating, I never did it, roller skating, track, you know, things where the body is in motion. Uh, you know, as a young child, I wouldn't have been able to say, like, that's where my interest is. But I, you know, certainly now I can look back and say, I've always been interested in anything moving. And then growing up in this family where um, music and, you know, music in general and jazz in particular were, were so much a part of our life. Um, you know, it, it's that, that connection between music and dance and it's just been very much embedded. And my brother is a jazz musician, James Zoller. And he's actually been, he's played, come to FSU to play a couple of times. Uh, he's played with the Basie Band. And another time it was at a club, B Sharp Street. So oh, yeah. we, have a, we have a long family history of jazz. That's awesome. Did you think that you were going to involve jazz in your choreography when you started Urban Bush Women? Yes, yes. And, and so it's not just the music itself, but it is how the music is organized. Jazz is music that is uh, highly improvised. And there is a, a, a high degree of skill of improvisation. People think that you just, oh, you just get up and do whatever you feel. Actually, that's not the case. You have to be able to compose on the spot structure and understand form and story often, your own internal story, rhythm, phrasing all at once. And that's the study of improvisation that I really began at Sounds in Motion with Diane, and I've continued in my own work. You talked about story and improvisation and then also jazz. And I know uh, when you were creating Train based on John Coltrane that you were doing a lot of research. And what what does research look like in a, in a dance company or, or in your dance ensemble specifically? How do you do that? It's interesting because I talk to my uh, students about what research is for us. So for me, it was going to uh, art exhibits that I could find on John Coltrane. It was listening to his music over and over again. Uh, it was reading any book I could find on John Coltrane about his life, his music, his legacy. It was interviewing musicians and um, talking to them about like, what is the legacy of Coltrane or what you know, you know, what is the approach of Coltrane and, and, and trying to understand this thing of modal music that mm. is often used to describe Coltrane's music. Uh, so the research for me is on many, many levels. It was going to jam sessions and hearing, hearing music. It was, um, we, saw, we, we use this term embodied or experiential research where the, the company would have an experience together mm. and then we'd come back in the studio and uh, work from that. So when we were in Chicago, we were able to go to the Black Music uh, Research Center at Columbia College and spend time researching 
the different approaches to Coltrane's music and then going back into the studio and mm-hmm. seeing how that would live in our bodies. So you're talking about ensemble-based approaches. Yes. How, how do you coordinate an ensemble as, as the leader and director who I'm assuming you need you need the funding, right? You, you have some of the, the boring business stuff to do, but then you're also trying to create new work in a collaborative form. What's that dynamic? There's always a tension between the administration of having an ensemble or a company and the creative work. And sometimes that tension, I will say, has been out of balance where my focus has been so administrative and and and. I felt like I was losing myself as an artist mm-hmm. or, uh, or the focus was so much as an artist that the administration was not properly supporting the art. So it is an ongoing tension and balance. Where I think we are as an organization right now is looking at what ensemble practices, which is collaboration and team teamwork and understanding roles and responsibilities and being able to respond um, to the to the needs of the of the moment and the situation within our within our roles and responsibility, and really starting to apply that more to our administrative practices, uh, oh. because I think that is where the future is. Could you explain a bit about how you apply that to the administrative practices? I think in a, in in arts administration, and often I will say specifically my experiences in dance. The administration tends to be task-based, and so it's getting the things done. Our ensemble is values-based. So if we're values-based and we're taking time to talk through what that means, values connected to action, but the administration is only task-based, you can see the potential for the gulf to happen. And so we've been talking about what are the processes we need that are really applicable to the environment and the work that the administrative team has to do um, that that build that value space uh, as well as knowing that I mean we both have we both have our to-do list of what we have to get done. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I think when in administration it is outside of understanding how you're part of the artistic circle. So for those faculty or uh, performing artists who are tasked with being in charge, being more on the administrative side of their own research and creativity, are there some tips or some encouragement you'd you'd want to share with them? For me, my research and creativity are at the center of my life. They're at the center of my teaching. They're at the center of, you know, everything that I do. And so each person has to figure out what that balance is for them of how they place their research in the center. Some people it's all consuming and some people it will be a part. Everybody has to find their balance with their families, with their, you know, with, you know, with their with the totality of their lives. And I think what this situation in COVID is uncovering is that our lives actually are not going to be invisible to to our work. So in Zooms, you see the children, you see the pets, you see the partners, you know, coming, you know, all of that is integrated. People are managing school um, work with being on calls and, or teach it. It's so it's what, 
where our family lives were invisible and our research and creative practice were the thing that people could see or are teaching, it's now moving towards maybe a more holistic framework. And I think, I hope that's what we can grow from, uh, from, this, from this crisis is that we are whole people and we are not just one thing. And when we're able to bring that holism into our work, I think we're all the better for it. You know, I, I just I just recently gave a talk, and um, there was a period of time when when funders were asking, "Can you present your theory of change?" They were first asking that. I was like, "Theory of change? I don't know what you mean." And then somebody said, "No, it's the work you're doing. You already have it articulated. You just have to put it in that particular language." And I think this theory of change is coming more to the front now to me. So this is my theory of change. The answer is always in the group, not the leader. That change is powerful, long-lasting, and life-affirming when the answer is in the group, not the individual leader. That people who are most affected by decisions need to be at the forefront of the decision-making. And I think that is something that the hierarchical nature of how uh, we have operated has really disempowered the voices of people who would have innovative solutions to some of the things that we are dealing with. Leadership has a responsibility to guide and facilitate a process through which people gain a full sense of their own power. Now, you have to understand that you have to want people to have a full sense of their own power. And I think there's some um, power structures, in fact, do not want that. Um, for me, that's, that is important. When a container is created for people's full power to emerge, the genius of the group will always rise above individual capacities. It will rise and create powerful, innovative practices of art. These are the lessons I've learned from jazz and jazz music and the jazz ensemble. It is the genius of the group that is allowed to emerge, that ensemble practice. So that's that for me and how you play back and forth uh, within the structure of, of the band. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there is a band leader. And this, this ensemble creates such amazing things together that could never just be done, I think, by, by one person. Mm. And then the last part of that in my theory of change is rather than seeing communities and people only as in crisis and in need, the genius will emerge when we shift the narrative to see where people are powerful. And if we make where they are powerful a central part of our work, then the them becomes the we. And that's the part I think our country is struggling with. We are a we. Mm -hmm. We are getting stuck in us and them. When you're talking about the genius shifting the narrative to not, oh, where are your weaknesses or where are you lacking, but where are you powerful? Is that related to that Summer Leadership Institute? Yes. That's in the community, right? That's like an outreach yeah, I want to I want to actually go back to that term outreach. So yes. when we when we started developing this approach to community engagement, um, at first when we were touring, people would say, 
go do outreach. And what I started to realize in the outreach model is that that was often institutions that would hire a company like Urban Bushwoman, uh, a predominantly black company, to go into areas that they called the inner city or the ghetto or rural, sometimes rural areas of poverty or mostly uh, black uh, audience so they could count off numbers of how many had been served. Mm -hmm. It had nothing to do with if the quality of the work was good, if we were creating lasting connections and relationships, it was counting. It was all about metrics. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we started to counter that with this idea at that time when we started using the term community engagement, it wasn't used so much in the, uh, the art or the dance world with the idea that there is mutual benefit. And so when we, so which means we have to have a different planning process and we have to have a different education and training process. So the Summer Leadership Institute was born out of that. How do we create that, that training and education process for artists to work with communities in the way that like somebody could have good intention, but just because they have good intention doesn't mean I'm going to let them operate on me because like, yeah. I see that cyst on your arm. I have good intention to operate on it because I, you know, I believe in the power of us to do this together. No. No. You want that person trained mm-hmm. and you want them trained really well to understand what that is. And so that's what the Summer Leadership Institute was about. Not just having good intentions, but having deep, rigorous, academic, scholarly, embodied, artistic, creative um, rigor and research uh, to to undergird the work. Mm. And then how has this Summer Leadership Institute grown? It's morphed and evolved and changed shapes. And we started, the first one was at FSU. We, We held it at FSU for three years. And it was a four-week summer leadership institute. We worked with community. We worked with the um, the uh, academic community at FSU as well as people we brought in. What we realized is that because it was a four-week model, we mostly got young students who could take that kind of time out for the summer. Mm-hmm. So we took some time off to rethink it, and we came up with a 10-day model mm. that, we, that we did uh, uh, in New York, in Brooklyn. And what we started to look at, what were the key components? And by having a 10-day model, we could get a wide range of participation. So usually we don't allow below 18 unless somebody's coming with a guardian. But we've had as young as 16 and as old as 82, 83. And we think that is what a community is. Mm -hmm. So that provides a stronger kind of um, learning together. Then we moved our Summer Leadership Institute to New Orleans after Katrina in response to our longtime partners there and to be a part of the rebuilding of the artistic leadership and community. And it morphed again, so it became a place-based model in 10 days. You know, then we had an alumni convening, and we just recently had a three-day virtual convening. (laughs) So... What I love is this idea of shape-shifting, which I think what COVID has again taught us and asked us is that we have to shape-shift to respond to the situation 
with our safety and the integrity of our work in mind. How do you get a funding agency to buy into that? Because what you're talking about is something very powerful, very, you know, passionate and make a better world based. But it, like you said, it's not metrics. And sometimes agencies are in the, they, they work in the language of metrics. How does that work? Perseverance and practice. <laughs> I remember there's one funder that we were in conversation with for seven years before we were able to get funding. Wow. And that's the perseverance. So a no is not a place to be angry about. Of course you're angry, you know, but, but it's not a place to stay angry about. It's a place to figure out how do we build the relationship so that we eventually get a yes. It's perseverance. And, and understanding its relationship building, which again is our EBX framework. It's not about, it's not transactional. It's relationship building. Have you ever been tempted to say, well, we'll just adapt what we're doing to fit the request for proposals? Yes, we are tempted. And this is the value of having a group of people with shared values. Because when we do that, somebody says, um, I, 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 uh, y'all, let, 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 let accountability here, accountability. You know, we're chasing dollars. And when we're chasing dollars, not in service of our vision and values, we're going to end up uh, outside of who we are. And it's not that you don't want to expand who you are, but you can, you can really lose yourself in the chasing of dollars. Arts funding is so small and so competitive. It, there, there isn't a lot of it. And then you funnel that down. Arts funding for, for women is smaller. And then for Black women is even smaller. Let alone Latinx, Asian. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Any minorities or, or marginalized people groups, it's even less and less. How, how would you encourage those going after that funding or, or that just awareness from the community to, to keep going or how to proceed? Fierceness, fortitude, and grace. Mm. You've got to, I mean, you've got to be ready to challenge people and challenge systems and challenge institutions. Uh, you've got to be ready to challenge that. Uh, you can also get so caught up in that challenge work that you lose your artistic. And that's where you have to offer grace to yourself and, and, and a certain grace to the community. If it's important to you, put it in front. Mm. It's not going to be easy, but nothing in life really is. But if it's important to you and it's worth fighting for, then uh, get in the good fight. Is there a moment where that fierceness, fortitude, and grace really came to bear in your own life? Oh, my God. How many times? You know, I, I, I've learned to just like, well, first of all, I never felt like I was entitled to get any grant. So like I was like, OK, I'll apply, apply. I'm always hurt, upset. And it's like, OK, all right. What did I learn from that? You know, what feedback and then move on. I think it's I, I tend to focus on the learning when you get rejection after rejection after rejection after rejection. I think it's really hard. And again, what do you trust and why are you doing it? So for me in the early years, I decided and through lots of different spiritual signs, signals, experiences that 
it was not about success. If I was chasing success, I was chasing the wrong thing. It was about, do I need to do this? Do I need to do this for my spirit? Mm -hmm. And if I need to do it, then I do it. And it's as simple as that. Do you have advice for performers who also work in an academic setting? Yeah. I, I hope I can say this in the right way. Sure. What I see with young faculty coming into academia is chasing tenure. Mm -hmm. We want tenure. You have to get tenure. But I see people going outside themselves. Well, this would be good for my tenure or this would be good. And I don't know if that's the system that we've created, then it's a flawed system. I'd like to see people be able to trust their work. Mm -hmm. What is your research work and the passion of your research work? You want to do it rigorously and vigorously, as opposed to doing things that are maybe a little bit outside your interest or, oh, I need to do those kinds of things because that's going to look good on my tenure profile. I hear that a lot, and I have a lot of big questions about that. And I think when you go from your genuine questions of your research and your work, that is where you become powerful. Absolutely. So getting back to the ensemble-based approach, what's the dynamic there as opposed to something like a collective? I don't, I don't, we are not a collective, uh, you know, and, and it has to do with roles and responsibility. So we have, we are director-based. We are a collaborative ensemble structure. There is a director, whether that director is me or somebody else. And that director has to have responsibility to understand how you get out of the way. And it's like when the band leader steps back and the band is playing mm. or, the, you know, and, 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 and the soloists are coming forward. The director isn't saying, now, no, you play these notes. <laughs> exactly. I mean, again, I'm using the jazz. I believe strongly, you know, in that there's a power in directed ensembles. I will say my role is to take a lot of visions and make them feel like one vision. Mm. So I feel like I'm often overcredited, you know, because <laughs> it wasn't like, I, you know, that was that person. But my job is to make it feel like one cohesive vision coming forward. And that's what I feel like the director's role is. That sounds like a tough process. Are there times when things feel very disjointed and like they're oh. not going to fit? And then like, what, what do you do in response to that? There's always those times, <laughs> daily, hourly. You, you do the work. You just trust and do the work. And what is the whole of what you're trying to do? W-H-O-L-E, whole of what you're trying to do. Sometimes I, I create like a little sentence for me of what I'm trying to do. So in one work, it was about a, a very powerful figure in dance, Pearl Primus. And my personal statement about that was I wanted to connect my artistic heart to her artistic heart. And so when I would feel this disjointed and times when I felt like, okay, I can't figure it out. I, I'd go back to that. I'd also bring people in. I work with dramaturgs and I said, like, I'm lost here. Um, what are you seeing? Because I think that outside feedback of people who have uh, an ability to listen to what your intention is and then articulate what they're seeing. And, and I really like people to express their opinions. 
um, and I'm not afraid of strong opinions. If someone says, I, Javali, I think you're so off base. This is, I think you're just off base here. I thought, I'm not afraid of that. Um, I, I like that and welcome that. But it has to be from people that I, I know and have some trust and relationship with. So you had talked in, a, in another interview about how that time as an artistic director and leader of the company really started to inform your creative work when you got back to it and had talked about understanding better the methodology of what you were doing. Is there a way to put in words what that methodology is, especially for us who may be outside of that dance world? To create a container for the genius in the room to arise. Mm. So as a director, as a choreographer, I want the genius that's in that room, and I know it's always in the room. How can it rise to its highest level? If there's anything I would say is a central methodology, it's that. And that takes a lot of communication and trust and building casting. You got to have the right people in the room. Mm-hmm. You got to have the right people in the room and understand where everybody is in the process of making work. So it's not, it's a very complex thing to really talk about, learn, and understand. One of my research areas is organizational structures. And there's this great book that I love this book by, um, uh, oops, his name has just gone out of my mind. Uh, Otto Schwarmer. It's Otto Schwarmer. It's called The Theory of You, the, the letter U. And when I read this book, I thought, oh my God, has this man been in our rehearsals? Has he been in our artistic process? Because the way he described it, this organizational structuring was so much like the artistic process. What I loved about it was the way he described the complexity. I think at first it used to be called chaos theory, and then it was called complexity theory, you know, gone a lot of evolutions. Uh, but this place of literally like a U-shape, where you start and how you go down to the sourcing, to the, to, to the presencing, and then how you come back up the other side. And I think that is so much the artistic process. And it's complex. It's many different systems, methodologies, tools um, to accomplish it. So it's not just one single thing. For someone who's thinking about starting their own ensemble company um, or performing arts group, would you suggest going for that kind of collaborative theory that you're talking about? I think whenever anybody starts, uh, you know, tries to bring forth a vision, it has to be true to them. I'm speaking about my work. There are people whose best work is going to be because they're autocratic and that's true to who they are. I don't have a lot of interest in working with them, um, but that doesn't mean that there isn't something powerful there. I think it's often very patriarchal. I don't have a lot of interest in that, but that doesn't mean that there can't be a powerful vision that emerges from that. Mm. Uh, so I think you have to be true to who you are and allow yourself to continue to evolve and grow. You know, there's people that have to control every and need to control every single element of the creative process and would never give people the kind of space that I give. And if that's their truth, I think, I think they need to operate from that truth. 
Mm -hmm. So with picking a collaborator or, you know, casting a dancer or choosing your dramaturg, what are some things to look for to, to make sure you're getting as close as you can to that right dynamic in the room? I don't know. It's, it's like finding your soulmate. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You, You trust what you feel. And develop, I would say, you know, develop the relationships. Sometimes jumping into bed for before you know each other might pay off. Um, <laughs> but I would suggest that if you get to know each other artistically a little better first. So what I do now is I, we generally do what we call play dates. So if it's somebody I'm considering, you know, working with, let's set up an artistic play date and um, lab together and figure out if there's something there mm. and uh, that's what I've learned to do because I've jumped in before I knew somebody and discovered I'm in the middle of a nightmare <laughs> and how do I get out so I've learned I've learned to, to do the artistic play dates and so I look for then a creative tension and synergy I mean there has to you want the tension that's a good thing and you want somebody who thinks differently or sees the world or is going to like, like blow open some of your assumptions. So yeah, it's, it, 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 you just gotta, you just gotta experiment with it. What I do know, if there is someone in the room where, where I start to shut down, if I feel the room shutting down, or I feel, if I feel myself shutting down, I have to look at what is happening in the room about who's in the room. Is it mm. something solely about me or is there someone whose energy is bullying or uh, allowing people not to take risk and be vulnerable? Because when, when that happens, people will shut down. So I, I definitely pay attention to that. And I try to pay attention to if that's me, mm. am I doing that um, if, when I see the room shutting down? That's staying true to your vision in an ensemble that even the director can't can't shut down that communication or that honesty. No. Mm. no. I feel like that takes a really mature and secure in themselves person to say, yes, I'm the director. I'm ultimately in charge, but I want to hear from you and I'm going to step back, you know, and let that genius come through, even if it's not mine. Well, isn't that leadership? And I think we could use a lot more of leadership like that. <laughs> I love that. For those who were in your shoes before and who, who are wanting to follow in your footsteps, is there anything that you would like to charge your fellow creatives with? Yeah, don't follow in my footsteps. <laughs> uh, there's, there's a great book by a man named Miles Horton, and it was written about the uh, civil rights Uh, and labor movement. And the book is called We Make the Road by Walking. And you just have to do it. And then evaluate, be willing to evaluate uh, what's working, what's not working. But you got to walk and you got to, your footprint is going to be very different than my footprint. Obviously, you learn from as many people as you, uh, as you can learn from, but trust the uniqueness of your footprint. Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. Journeys in Research is a production of the Office of Research Development at Florida State University. 
To stay up to date with content, subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us on our homepage, ord.fsu.edu. We'd love to hear from you. Please send questions or suggestions for episodes to ord.fsu.edu with the word podcast in the title. Music for this episode by Ketza. Special thanks to C.C. Pierre, Brooke Rucker, and our guest, Jawale Willa Joe Zoller. I'm Evangeline Coker. Thanks for listening. <laughs>